after 12 midday on the first Monday of the month and we've somehow reached October in this bizarre yet memorable year 2020. I'm Vanessa Levenstein, standing in for the marvellous Cindy Moritz. We hope our listeners in Cape Town have weathered the recent wind and that you've had some fabulous reading material to keep you company while the world was being turned upside down around us. As always, the FMR Book Choice team strives to bring calm in the chaos. And this month, we have more great reads for a broad variety of tastes. I'm joined in the studio by Mzumaketa, and I look forward to spending the next hour with you. We kick off with my own review of Louise Trieger's The Lodger, a gritty look at the life of writer Dorothy Richardson, who lived in a boarding house in Bloomsbury. Philip Todras secured a valuable few minutes with author Mark Gefisser in conversation about his new book, The Pink Line, which is getting much attention the world over. While The Pink Line focuses on the LGBTQ plus community in particular, this book makes an important contribution to issues of human rights in general. Philip calls it a fascinating study that takes Mark on a seven-year journey of exploration, meeting people that provide a human dimension to the politics and prejudices of acceptance. Beverly Ruiz Miller read Mikhail Haynes's A Poor Season for Wales, which begins with a well-heeled 50-something woman having just moved to Hermanus, ending up with a dead man in her kitchen. What does that have to do with the Wales, we wonder? John Hanks reviews Jocelyn Kagan's Africa's Wild Dogs, a survival story. This is a large format photographic celebration of one of the continent's most charismatic and endangered predators. And Beryl Eichenberger urges us not to be misled by the title of Amitav Ghosh's latest novel, Gun Island, calling it a fable tale that brings together the past, the present, and the probable future. Leslie Beek explores and explains the incredible initiative, Book Dash, Admit she's a fan and will likely convert you too. And finally, Cindy Moritz adds her voice with a review of Vivian de Klerk's Not to Mention. This cleverly constructed novel is woven around clues of a crossword puzzle composed as a diary and written by a 360-kilogram bedridden, almost 21-year-old woman to her mother. So, as usual, we have loads to recommend. Let's get straight to the reviews then. I'll kick off with Louise Trieger's The Lodger. There is a well-known quote about the famous Bloomsbury group. They lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles. When we think Bloomsbury, the first writer that comes to mind is Virginia Woolf, who used the stream of consciousness as a narrative device. Yet, there was another female writer, also living in Bloomsbury, who too was exploring the concept of the interior monologue. Her name was Dorothy Richardson. 
I hadn't heard of her, and neither had author Louisa Trieger. Yet it was when Trieger was searching for an angle on Virginia Woolf for her PhD thesis that she found a review that Virginia had written about a writer whose name she did not recognize. In 1923, Woolf wrote, Dorothy Richardson has invented a sentence which we might call the psychological sentence of the feminine gender. It is of a more elastic fibre than the old, capable of stretching to the extreme, of suspending the frailest particles, of enveloping the vaguest shapes. And so, Louisa Trigger found her subject, the lodger. Do not judge this book by the somewhat romantic airbrushed cover of a lady in a hat with feathers, hands on hip, standing on London Bridge. This is a gritty look at the life of Dorothy Richardson, who lives in a boarding house in Bloomsbury. She works as a secretary for a dentist and is determined to carve out her own future. Yet freedom for women without money is one that is hard won. Marriage is, of course, the obvious way out of poverty, but as Dorothy realizes, the price is a lifetime of servitude. The novel starts with a country visit to Dorothy's old friend Amy Catherine, who is married to the famous H.G. Wells, known as Bertie. Wells's chauvinism may be disguised under the veil of his creativity, but nonetheless his patriarchal world has room for one person in it, and that is H.G. Wells. His wife Amy Catherine he renames Jane, and he has no problem taking Jane's school friend Dorothy as his lover. You like a ripe, juicy peach, Wells tells her which is clear she is a commodity for him to devour. Yet while Dorothy is attracted to his intellect, to the world of words he inhabits, he is not her true love. And here the author weaves in the story of the women who were suffragettes in England. Dorothy's friendship and subsequent love affair with fellow boarder Veronica is one of sensuality, pain and love. While Dorothy uses words as a key to escape her lot as a woman, the suffragettes were militant in their fight for women's right to vote. They were tortured and imprisoned. Dorothy could scarcely believe that officers of the law were treating defenceless women with such brutality. Trigger writes, and of course imprisonment strengthened the resolve of some and broke others. Yet Dorothy's own suffering and her exposure to the torment that other women experienced only enforced her desire to stay true to her path, and she did with her 13 novel sequence called Pilgrimage, a fictionalized account of her own life. I found the lodger engaging, and above all, salute the author for resurrecting Dorothy. However, the Washington Post made an interesting observation. Ironically, this avant-garde adventure is chronicled in thoroughly traditional prose. Trigger doesn't quite tell her readers what to think, but neither does she dive into her character's interiors with the thrilling, free-form panache of such novels as William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, Wolfe's Mrs. Dalloway, and, for the happy few who have read it, Richardson's multi-volume novel sequence, Pilgrimage. While valid, this line in The Lodger, spoken by H.G. Wells, gave me pause for thought. A reviewer must take care not to destroy early work especially by writers who are just honing their skills. Philip Todris spoke to Mark Gefisser about his new book, The Pink Line, 
Philip describes it as a fascinating study that takes Mark on a seven-year journey of exploration, meeting people that provide a human dimension to the politics and prejudices of acceptance. The Pink Line journeys across the world's queer frontiers by Mark Gefisser, and, as they say, an eye-opening, expertly researched, and compellingly narrated. The Pink Line is a monumental. And urgent journey of unprecedented scope into 21st century identity, seen through the border posts along the world's new LGBTQ plus frontiers. Mark, you've undertaken yourself a very big seven-year project. Tell us how you got involved. Which, for me, is a book not just about LGBTQ plus frontiers, but about human rights issues. How did you get involved? And can you perhaps define what you mean by the pink line? Thank you, Philip. Yes, it, it is definitely a book about human rights issues. It's a book about what makes us human today, and also a book about a new global politics that I believe has come to define and describe and even divide the world in a, in a whole new way in the 21st century. A politics that has been staked around a new human rights frontier around the rights of people on the basis of their sexual orientation and gender identity. And I call this new human rights frontier a pink line. And I look at the way this pink line uh, runs between countries, between those countries where that are increasingly giving rights uh, to people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, and those countries that which in backlash are actually denying even rights that were there before. I look at how the pink line runs through countries, and we can see that in South Africa, where we have such an extraordinary constitution that is really a pioneer when it comes to, to issues like sexual orientation and same-sex marriage, and yet we still have this horrible violence on the ground of people um, uh, who are gender non-conforming. I look at how the pink line uh, uh, runs between uh, the kind of freedom you can have online when you sign on to a, a sort of new globalized notion of rights and identity where you can meet, meet other people like you and where you can um, find information and solace in an online community. But then what happens when you come offline and you have to sort of look up from your smartphone into the eyes of a, a disapproving parent or a church that says that um, you're a sinner or a state that says that you've done something illegal? Well, as you said somewhere along the line, you're reviewing tradition and morality versus Western liberal capitalism. I found that perhaps a bit too much influenced by um, a certain PR companies. But this is really, and as you say, it's a conversation it's often, which is vibrant, but often violent. Well, what's happened, Philip? Let's start at the beginning. There is no culture on the planet. There is no sub-branch of the species Homo sapiens that does not have homosexuality and that does not have gender nonconformity, which means um, uh, gender is a spectrum rather than just male and female as two, as two immutable boundaries. That is, that is universal. But what has come up in the West over the past hundred years is this idea that, that, such, that, that such a look or such a behavior is an identity and is something that you can claim rights on, that you can join up with other people who have those same characteristics and fight for your right to, to be yourself rather than to have to pretend and be something else. Now, now, because this is something that has come up in the West, it's been tagged by people in other parts of the world, by patriarchs, priests, and, and politicians, as, um, as, as a West.
particularly on the African continent and in Eastern Europe in countries like Russia, as a way of saying um, we need to protect our traditional values against the onslaught of a sort of secular Western capitalism. Even in a country like the United States, you will see evangelical Christians saying we need to protect our communities against this idea coming from you know, godless New York, that boys can be girls and girls can be boys. It becomes a way of, of, of drawing a line against, really, what is the inevitable um, extension well, of human rights to all people. Yeah, what you're dealing with is change, and the world has been changing very dramatically in the 21st century. And as you say, you're also trying to discover why it is happening. But then, I think we're talking at a very precise moment in time where we've just where the President of the United States of America cannot definitively talk against white super-racism. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. This is a very important time where we don't only just look at what we call queer rights, pink rights, about the global issues of, of this uncertainty that people just find it so difficult to think more universally and that the answer isn't that vibrant conversation but violence. And well, it, yeah, there's a fair what what there is, and and, the, and pink line politics is very much about this. It's about it's about a, a fear of the other that is exploited uh, towards the end of a kind of populist nativist politics, um, which is exactly what you see coming from someone like Donald Trump, or from or from Viktor Orban in Hungary, or from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and it's no um, it's no coincidence that those kinds of leaders have have activated um, anti-LGBT politics uh, in some way or another, at, as well as anti-immigrant politics, and in some instances anti-anti-anti-person of colour or black politics too. Well, I think the most important thing is to persuade people listening to us today that they really have got to pick up a copy of your book, because uh, although you also thread through a lot of personal life histories which have taken an enormous amount of time to put together and as I see it's seven years of research getting into other people's lives and trying to look at it sort of dispassionately yet you pull it all together in a book which I think really does a remarkable job of talking about the politics of the time, the situation we find ourselves in and the way things do need to change the way we look at how other people live and that it's but okay. I, also, I also hope that it's a good read because I, I really want I'm, I'm, I'm first and foremost a storyteller and, and I believe very much in the principle of show, don't tell Done what just I hope that. to do is show, is show the reader these dynamics by, by taking them into the lives of, of nine really compelling stories of nine people all over the world from South Africa to Russia to the United States to Israel, Palestine to India and you've certainly done a very good job about that. I would certainly highly recommend Pink Line. And as someone said, it's not just necessary reading for those who care about justice. It ought to be mandatory. Smile, an everlasting smile a smile can bring you me to me Don't ever let me find you down Cause that would bring a tear to me This world has lost 
lost its glory Let's start a brand new story now, my love Quiet now, there'll be no other time And I can show you how, my love Talk in everlasting words And dedicate them all to me And I will give you all my life I'm here if you should call to me You think that I don't even mean A single word I say It's only words And words are all I have To take your heart away What a great tune. It's the Brothers Gibb, and we know them as the Bee Gees, a song that was written after an argument. The brothers there were. Okay, thank you, thank you. I don't know what happened there. So, this tune was written after the brothers had an argument with different people, and this, this tune came from that can you believe it so in it's true that words can make you happy and words can also make you miserable hence we have to choose our words wisely i think what do you what do you think um, about that song vanessa well i think your words are wise yeah <laughs> thank you so what do we have next on the menu beverly rose miller takes us to hermanus this month with mikhail haynes's a poor season for wales in which we meet 50-something margaret crowley who has just moved to hermanus at the end of her marriage a well-heeled 50-something woman moves to hermanus after the end of her marriage in a quest for a new and undemanding start in life what could possibly go wrong the giveaway right at the beginning of the book, so this is not a spoiler, is that she will end up with a dead man in her kitchen. But this is also not a thriller, though there are plenty of hijinks in the novel. 
It is, as so many of Michael Haynes' books, a comedy of manners and errors that play out in a deceptively tranquil setting. Margaret Carley was once a successful architect, mother of two, part of a sociable Newlands couple and a wide circle of friends, and an enviable life of travel and comfort, and then her pleasant husband left her for another man. Translocating to the seaside resort of Hermanus, she walks Benji, her dog, along the cliffs. All Haynes' books have interesting dogs in them, a reflection of his own life. Benji takes a tumble onto a precarious ledge and is rescued by a fit young man. Jimmy Prinsloo Mazibuku is a mixed-race child of struggle icons who had climbed onto the gravy train and more or less abandoned their attractive young son to the care of his Afrikaans, Prince Lou uncle, who did his best. Jimmy has the skills of a child who has learned to survive and the confidence of his well-connected and well-heeled background. He is smart, annoyingly useful and needy without necessarily recognizing that. He insinuates himself into Margaret's life, not that that is a difficult thing to do. She appears unable to say no to either Jimmy's casual demands, nor to her ex-domestic worker Rebecca, who insists that Margaret, who had hoped to live a simpler life, rescue her from a life as a put-upon granny in a township, and she moves into her guest flat. Nor can she refuse her husband's alcoholic and lewd sister Felicity, who arrived for a memorably chaotic family Christmas. It's possible to see from a mile and a half away where all this is going, and it does, but that's not really the point. This is a smooth eclair with a chilly bite in the center, and Margaret, while I longed for her to be more assertive, is in fact aware of her own complicity. She has lived an orderly life and now recognizes that it is better to live to regret the mistakes you have made than regret the ones you have not. There's a good deal of long conversation in the book, a linguistic fencing between Margaret and Jimmy and also her wise friend Frida who gives her a nod and a wink and a willing shoulder to lean on. These dialogues deal implicitly with the new South Africa and the old prejudices and the wealth and class differences that remain. Jimmy is the elusive fish, swimming not where the tide takes him, but according to his own instincts, fluid, flexible, not answerable to the old mores of the past, nor even some of those in the present. Some of the book's best passages are about the elusive whales who have failed to appear for the season, the great leviathans whose behavior remains elusive to us mere mortals. Our own behavior, on the other hand, is so much more predictable. The author Michael Haynes is an accomplished writer as well as translator and I have enjoyed all his previous books, particularly those with an ironic subset, such as A Sportful Malice. This is more confronting, especially for somebody like me, whose life once looked rather a lot like Margaret's Newlands idyll before she needed to make a new life for herself. It's meant to prick, a book by an author not afraid to push your buttons. Long after I had finished it, I thought about Margaret, forging ahead on her own unpredictable but necessary path. John Hanks, you called Jocelyn Kagan's Africa's Wild Dogs, a survival story, a superb production, 
a landmark publication put together and at times poetically written. Africa's Wild Dogs, a survival story, is a large format photographic celebration of one of the continent's most charismatic and endangered predators. It is a superb production, a landmark publication put together and at times poetically written by Jocelyn Kagan, with supporting insights written by seven other scientists and conservationists committed to the future of wild dogs. The book is a genuine labour of love to inform the world about the fascinating activities of one of the continent's most misunderstood and maligned animals. Some of you might know the species better by one of its other names, the painted wolf, which I must confess I've never liked, although I suppose the name could suggest some artistic license, as no two dogs have exactly the same markings and colorations. Jocelyn Kagan is the most talented and totally committed photographer, going to great lengths to get many of the unrivaled photographs in the book by often lying on the ground next to her subject. More than just a photographer, she also writes with a passion and understanding of her subject, describing the dogs as beautiful, intelligent, iconic animals, integral to the ecosystems of the African bush, describing them as remarkable, non-confrontational, inquisitive and self-determined predators. Wild dogs were once widely distributed in Africa, with the exception of forests, but today their range has been seriously fragmented, with only about 6,600 individuals surviving, with established packs in just seven countries. The reason for this include a shoot-to-kill policy from far too many farmers, the loss of habitat as the continent's rapidly growing human population transforms and fragments natural ecosystems with infrastructure and livestock, predation on wild dog by lion and disease from contact with domestic dogs. But more recently, escalating poverty and serious malnutrition in many African countries as a result of coronavirus has stimulated a resurgence of bushmeat hunting with wild dogs being caught in snares set for other animals. The suffering of any animal caught in a snare is appalling. But wild dogs are all too frequently a component of collateral damage, with one case of a young male chewing off its own leg to get out of a snare. As Rosemary Groom, one of the contributors to the book, said, until there is basic food security and access to education and health services in the communities that live alongside wildlife, we are fighting an uphill battle. It's a battle, though, that can be won when the required education and economic upliftment is coupled with support for the dedicated team of conservationists working for an unassailable future for Africa's wildlife, both by securing natural habitats of adequate size and by championing species reintroductions. South Africa's Wild Dog Advisory Group has kept meticulous records of what works and does not work when it comes to wild dog reintroductions and have maintained a total number of wild dogs above 150 individuals in more than 12 breeding packs since 2009. These good news stories, of course, need repeating and enhancing, and this is where Jocelyn Kagan must be congratulated 
for not only stimulating an appreciation for such a fascinating animal, but also by ensuring that all of the royalties from the book will go towards wild dog conservation through her new foundation, which is called Africa's Wild Dog Survival Fund. I will end this review with a quote from the author's acknowledgments, where she said, To those who share my dream to ensure people learn more and gain a deeper understanding as they demystify the non-confrontational nature of the spirited predator, my deepest appreciation and grateful thanks. End quote. In turn, we should thank Jocelyn for an outstanding production for which I have no hesitation in giving my strongest possible recommendation. The title again, Africa's Wild Dog, A Survival Story, written by Jocelyn Kagan, published in 2020 by Merlin Unwin Books in England, and it sells for 520 rand. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase To hear those three little words That's all I'd live for the rest of my day And while I feel in my heart They tell sincerely No other word can tell it half so clearly Three little words Eight little letters which simply mean I love you. Wow, that was super short. Fred Astaire there with three little words. So you can see there's a theme there. We started off with the Bee Gees. They gave us words. And now Fred Astaire there with three little words on Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. Vanessa, what's going on. More words from Beryl Eichenberger. Beryl, you've told us that Amitav Ghosh's Gun Island is anything but a thriller, rather an expansive novel that spins across Calcutta and the Sundar band mangrove swamps to Venice and Los Angeles, highlighting the plight of refugees, animals and climate change. At first glance, the cover of the Gun Island edition I received is so dark and uninspiring that I was not compelled to delve inside. Readers so often select a book by its cover, and when you couple that with barely readable fine print on the back cover, well, put it back on the shelf. As I had also not read Amitov Gosh before, there was little chance I was going to read it. But I am so glad that I did. Once you move beyond the murky covers, oh, what a story is being told. The beautiful prose hooks you from page one. And don't be misled, this is not a gun-toting thriller, or is it? From Calcutta to Venice and Los Angeles, the reality of the world today blends with the fabled past and the probable future. Intricate stories of each place form the landscape of an epic and sometimes sinister journey, but the seemingly tangled threads come together with a sense of hope and community. The strangest thing about this strange journey was that it was launched by a word, and not an unusually resonant one either, but a banal, commonplace coinage that is in wide circulation from Cairo to Calcutta. That word is banduk, which means gun in many languages, including my mother tongue, Bengali. So says Dean, and this begins his journey. 
A dealer in rare books and lover of words and stories in all their forms, he is resident in Calcutta, escaping the harsh winter months of Brooklyn, New York. Bengali folklore is one of his passions. At a family gathering, he is reminded of the story of Bandukai Chand Sadaga, the gun merchant, and the fable of the goddess Manessa Devi, who wanted him as a devotee. This then becomes the trigger for a strange search. A visit to his aging aunt Nilima secures his interest, and through her scientist friend Pia, he decides to visit the shrine to this goddess. It lies in the swamplands of the Sundarbans, the largest mangrove swamps in the world, teeming with snakes. Getting to the shrine is perilous, and as his guides Tipu and Rafi lead him to a display of strange symbols, the snakes make their dangerous appearance. From the swamps. Dean flies to Los Angeles, where wildfires are raging, and his long-time friend Sinta is waiting. She provides the missing link, identifying the strangest symbol. An island within an island leads him to Sinta's native Venice. Rafi appears again, now a migrant in the city, as so many other Bengalis. The migration story becomes an integral part. As it touches not just on the plight of humans, but also our wildlife. When describing the displaced, their dangers, the extortion, government stunts, and a community who plan rescue missions, there is palpable tension. Loss and hope weave intrinsically through the narrative, and everything is connected. The compelling characters, Tipu and Rafi, with their equally dangerous journeys and their separation. Pia, whose passion for dolphins and their departure from habitat and habit takes another path; Sinta, whose spirituality adds to the mysticism that embraces the novel. There are strange coincidences that, at times, feel implausible, but blend effortlessly. Symbols come to life: snakes and poisonous spiders threaten in strange places, but there is never a sense of fantasy. Everything is very real. Gosh is an atmospheric writer, and the sense of place is immediately realized. He captures the smells, the cobbles or mud beneath your feet, the swirling mists of a sinking, flooded Venice, and the migrants' fear as climate change, conservation, and transition come together. While there is much to keep up with, Gosh brings together each of the themes so skillfully. That the reader is left with a clear picture of what we humans are doing to this world, but also that there is hope. Meticulous and enthralling, this is a novel to savor, not only for the prose, but for the sensory moments it conjures up. There she is, sleeping on the laundry, with the golden sunlight. In her hair, there's my heart. With her on the laundry, how do you describe a girl so fair? Graceful, slender. Gentle, tender, 
Where are the words that describe her angel lover? I discover there are no words that describe her. Easier by fire, say I, to steal the sky from the songbirds than to find the words that seem right. How do you describe a dream right? Where are the words? Where are the Sky from the songbirds, then to find the words that seem right. How do you describe a dream right? With this kind of music, if you're having lunch, I'm sure you're enjoying your lunch right now. Music there from Sammy Davis, music that was written by Leslie Brickers of the soundtrack Dr. Doolittle. I'm sure you remember that movie. Vanessa, I'm sure it brings back some good memories for you, huh? I grew up with that movie. I yeah. absolutely loved Rex Harrison. <laughs> he was the definitive Dr. Doolittle, in my opinion. Yeah. So, what do we have next? Leslie Beek. Do tell us more about Book Dash, the people you so aptly refer to as book heroes. My favorite kind of people are the ones who say they're going to do something, ignore the muttered voices saying it isn't possible, and then go right ahead and do it. Book Dash people are that sort. 100 books owned by every child under five is a serious undertaking. Some people raised their eyebrows. I didn't. I've met Book Dash. Everything they do is alternative, different from traditional methods of getting a book in a child's hands. First, there's the creative process where writers, illustrators, editors, book designers, and the generally committed are invited to 12-hour days where they will, in one sitting, produce a book. It is immense fun, fueled by excellent catering, and the results speak for themselves. For those of a numerical cast of mind, here are some figures to impress. 140 original titles created at 15 Book Dash events. Over 500 local language versions of those books available on the website. 900,000 physical copies already distributed through 200 and more literacy promotion initiatives. And let me repeat that number, 900,000. And a newsflash which came in about five seconds before this broadcast, they will reach a million 
with the Santa's Shoebox project this Christmas. So by the end of 2020, it will be a million books distributed. And that happens so cheaply, the cost of 10 rand a book, in huge parts due to the volunteers, but also to consumers buying the books and to people who donate to make this happen. I run one of those literacy initiatives, and you should just see the eyes of the children light up when those easily recognizable square little books appear, because they know that they will be owning them by the end of our workshop and taking them home. There is no other measure of a book for me than the eyes of children. They speak quite clearly of the desperate need in our communities for stories and books. Because of the really wide range of people involved in the workshops, the topics are also completely out of the box and made by the team, not dictated by the need for publishers to cater for the slim pickings of educational buy-in. So they are free and unfettered, flying like little literacy kites across a clear blue sky, unhampered by commercial necessity. Books are intended for younger children, but given the sad state of our reading levels, work with older ones too. One of my favorites is Rafiki's style, a story where Rafiki finds out the trend changed and hairstyles that were out can suddenly be in. It also addresses the dangerous issue of boys' hairstyles. Traditional publishing can all too easily fall into stereotypes and what is expected. Book Dash doesn't have to bother with all of that. Another book deals with a very busy day in which Mama and I go shopping, including for shoes, but some stereotypes are more than that. They are through life. With plenty of opportunity to expand on the vocabulary and ideas in the story, it's also pure fun and close to the real experiences children actually have in South Africa. Some of the books are for slightly older children or, or more experienced young readers. Grasso's Dream is one of these. With a bit more text and some more challenging vocabulary, it introduces the concept of biography in simple understandable and interesting terms. Children need, ought to have, are desperate for choice in their reading. With these little books priced at 45 rand each in shops, that becomes possible, and for many who can't afford even that, donations help to make it happen. Do I approve of Bookdash? Um, well, you should have worked that out by now. But international recognition has also recently come in the form of an award from the Ibi Yamada Fund, and also from the Library of Congress Award, prestigious stuff. To download the books free, to translate them into whatever language you wish, also free, go to bookdash.org. Is it a nice website? Uh, mm, yeah. To buy the books, try exclusive branches, which should have a selection. Well, to the Bookdash team, well done. And that website, bookdash.org. Cindy Moritz was hooked on the crossword clues divide by, devised by protagonist Katie Ferreira in Vivian de Klerk's Not to Mention. Did you manage to solve the puzzles? I picked up Vivian de Klerk's Not to Mention in search of a lighter read during the heaviness of some level of pandemic-related restriction. And although I soon discovered it can hardly be described as light reading... The main character does weigh 360 kilograms to begin with. The author's teasing use of language through carefully crafted crossword clues to reveal some serious issues provides a modicum of respite from our grim current reality. 
De Klerk is Professor Emeritus of Linguistics at Rhodes University and not to mention is her first novel. She set it aptly in the Eastern Cape where the Herald newspaper features early and often in the novel. Katie Ferreira is approaching her 21st birthday but instead of planning a fun celebration at 360 kilograms is confined to her bed and has been for almost two years. She has safeguarded from earlier years at school three clean Croxley notebooks, which she begins to use as a diary for herself, but also as a letter to her mother, who, it transpires, has enabled her current misfortune. Katie's mother, Felicity, gives her what she believes is all that she needs, copious amounts of food, drink, and the daily newspaper through which Katie discovers the joy of crossword puzzling. Through creating a grid with 70 answers, Katie unpacks her story using clues to events and memories that ultimately solve the puzzle of her life for the reader. De Klerk cleverly uses the typographical device of the strike-through to indicate text that is Katie's true thoughts towards her mother at the beginning of the book, and as she works through her own issues, we see her become empowered to cross out less and effectively speak up more. Set in the 1980s, there is a nostalgic element for those who remember buying certain brands from the corner shop, but also the unrest at the time, documented through the reports in the Herald and contrasted with Katie's personal an ultimately unfortunate struggle. The joy of this read is the discovery through the skillful use of clues to unwrap each layer, so I won't share any more narrative details, but I will urge anyone who loves a good word puzzle to seek out this carefully crafted tale told from the perspective of a complex young woman with whom many I imagine will sympathize. The book is not to mention by Vivian de Klerk, published by Pan Macmillan. You're just too marvelous, too marvelous for words like glorious, glamorous, in that old standby amorous. It's all too wonderful I'll never find the words That say enough Tell enough I mean they just aren't swell enough You're much too much And just too very, very To ever be In Webster's Dictionary and so I'm borrowing a love song from the birds To tell you that you're marvelous, too marvelous for words
You're much, you're too much, and just too very, very to ever be, to ever be in Webster's Dictionary. And so I'm borrowing a love song from the birds to tell you that you're marvelous. It's the crooner, Frank Sinatra on Book Choice with two marvelous four words. One of my favorite uh, jazz standards done by a great artist, Frank Sinatra, there on Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. Vanessa, what are we doing next, my friend? We are saying to all our Fine Music Radio members, you are too marvelous for... Words. words. Your memberships and donations have kept us going, so a big thank you. But we now have a new month to get through, and our target this month is, get to, is to get to 3,000 members. If you become a member, renew your membership, or make a donation in the month of October, you go into our lucky draw, and we are giving away great prizes. Visit fmr.coza, and payments can now also be made through Ozo. And that's it for the month of October. Thanks to the marvelous Cindy Moritz for compiling the show. I hope you're enjoying a much-deserved break. Thanks to another marvellous man, Zoom Maketa, for putting this program together, and Rick Everett for his selection of music. By the way, Rick thought he'd have a little bit of fun this month, much like Katie in the last book reviewed, and inserted clues in the previous musical tracks leading up to this final with which we'll play out. The first four songs all have the words, words, in their title, culminating in Ella Fitzgerald declaring in the last one, I could write a book. From me, Vanessa Levenstein, happy reading. Up next, matinee with Johann Gerber. Six, seven, I never learned to count a great amount. But my busy mind is burning to use what learning I've got. I won't waste any time. I'll strike while the iron is hot. If they ask me,
of a plot is just to tell them that I love you a lot and the
Thank <laughs> you.